Well, welcome to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. And uh, if we haven't met, it's uh, a joy to be with you this morning. Um, thank you for bringing the church into this room that we might worship together. Those of you that belong to Jesus, we don't believe this morning that you have come to church. In that sense, we believe that if you belong to Jesus and are a member of his kingdom, that you have actually brought the church into this room. And this room is now a sacred space because we're in it here to gather in this mysterious thing called corporate worship where we read and we pray and we sing and in a little bit we'll take communion uh, and the transformative power of the mystery of God uh, is with us. And so uh, now we're in the sermon portion of our time together. We are in a series on the book of Acts. We have been in this series all fall. Acts is this follow-up story to the book of Luke, uh, the kingdom of God that has come into the world in the book of Luke. Luke then writes the conclusion of that story uh, through the life of the church, saying the kingdom of God is still advancing, the mission of Jesus is still advancing, even though Jesus has ascended to be with the Father, the continued acts of Jesus uh, continues in the life of the church so we've been looking at that through the book of Acts. What was this early church? Who was this early church? What was their mission? What was their scope? How were they guided? How did they do it? Where did they fail? What were their challenges? And what does it all say to us? So we've been looking at that all fall. We now are jumping ahead uh, several chapters in the book of Acts. The, our series will conclude in the next couple of weeks. And so we're kind of picking up the pace through the book of Acts. Because here's what the second half of the, of the book of Acts is basically all about. This guy named Paul, this guy named Saul, has a crazy conversion experience in Acts chapter 9. And then the, basically the second half of the book is Paul taking this gospel, this message of the resurrected Messiah, out of Jerusalem into the Gentile world, the known world, the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire. And so basically Acts 15 through Acts 28, the last 13 chapters of the book, is all Paul taking the gospel to the Gentile world. And so we're kind of selecting a few of those stories, watching Paul and the gospel advance through the known world. So we come to a critical chapter in Paul's taking of the gospel to the Gentile world. Paul is in Athens, uh, certainly um, one of the most important cities in the world at the time. We'll look at it here in a minute. Uh, but Paul is on his second missionary journey. This is about five or so years after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Um, and then here we go on what does Paul do when he gets to Athens, this cultural and intellectual epicenter of the known world. Here we go. It's Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? I thought that was so funny. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. <clears throat> Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, 
I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as even as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, <clears throat> and a woman named Demarius, and others with him. This is the word of the Lord. Quite the passage, quite the story. Paul in Athens. So he's come off this church planning journey. He's been in northern Greece, kind of Macedonia area, and he now finds himself in the global city of Athens. We're told in the first verse of this section that he's waiting on others from his kind of church planting team to join him there. And while he's waiting on them to come, while he's waiting on these other church planters with him from his team to come and join him, he doesn't find himself sitting alone in a hotel room, like reading a book, waiting for his team to arrive. He doesn't spend his per diem. Like he's, he's, he's not just waiting for the real work to begin. He decides, we're told in verse 17, he goes to the marketplace. What does that mean? It's a Greek word, the agora, means the marketplace. And marketplace is different. Don't necessarily think uh, like supermarket or just where, like, a, like a, a village market where like just food or transactions were happening. Marketplace was essentially the, the, the epicenter of all of life in a, in a given city. Athens was the cultural capital of the world at this time. Rome, potentially the political and power capital in Alexandria, and Egypt, potentially you know, the educational capital. But Athens, for a long time, and still remained up until this point of the day of Paul, was the cultural, intellectual, philosophical capital of the world. And all of it happened in the marketplace. On any given day in the marketplace, there were temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. So who's in the marketplace? When we're told that Paul goes to the marketplace, who's there? And the answer is really simple, everybody. Everybody was in the marketplace. You have town officials, judges deliberating. You have artists creating. You have the stock market where business is happening. Deals are being closed. Philosophers debating, which by the way, there wasn't like Twitter or online poking. It was like, you want to go debate about worldviews and ideologies? You went to the marketplace to do this. Face-to-face -face debates. Everything is happening in the marketplace. We have nothing even close to it. The closest thing I could think of this week, which only scratches the surface, is like a college campus 
where there's all these worldviews coming in, there's, there's education going on, there's debating going on, there's, there's economic things happening, there's transactional things happening, but this is like the whole city happens in the marketplace. It's all here. It's the center of everything. It's the place you shop for everything. It's where ideas were shared. It's where philosophy was debated. It's where business happened. It's where art happened. The marketplace was everything. And that's where Paul goes with his faith. That's where Paul goes with his message of this resurrected rabbi from Jerusalem to this Gentile epicenter. Knowing, and, and it's not, he was planting churches all over the Mediterranean, so he's not only going to Athens, but he knows in Athens, this, this, is, this is a tipping point moment. This is a, hey, this is the cultural and intellectual and philosophical capital of the world. And so Paul is going to this place because he believes that the gospel of Jesus has something to say into all those places. Where better to go with the message that you believe will change the world and every aspect of the world, not just the religious aspect of the world, but the marketplace aspects of the world than to Athens. So he starts debating in the marketplace with these people. This is not, this is not like crazy street evangelist. Like, don't think about like the animal proselytizers outside Frothy down here, okay? That's not what, it, like, that's not what he was doing, okay? He wasn't annoying, okay? Uh, Paul was actually, this is where it happened. This is where these things, this is where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, this is where philosophical ideals and worldviews, this is where it was all shared. This was the place for this. Paul was not being abnormal to come in and say, hey, I have a different worldview. I have a different way that I think about life than everyone here. Can I tell you about it? Paul goes there to the city with unrivaled reputation as this empire's intellectual and cultural capital. And when Paul goes to this place, what does he see? How does Paul's, what is Paul's framework? At what does he see when he's going to that city that is that impactful, that is that important in the Roman Empire? What does he see? Verse 16, the opening line. This is Paul's framework. This is why Paul is passionate about it. Verse 16, you can throw this up. While Paul was waiting for them, that's his church plant team in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. A city that was full of idols. Now you may hear that, if you know your ancient history, your Greek history, you may think, well of course he saw idols everywhere. They had these statues. They had Greek gods everywhere. There were hundreds of them. The, the, the Greek god family tree is enormous. There's, there's so, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of Greek gods. It was said of the ancient Greek world that in Athens it was easier to find a god than a man because there were innumerable temples, innumerable shrines, statues, and altars. So when Paul's walking the city, of course he sees idols everywhere. The Parthenon in ancient Athens that on the Acropolis was the highest point in the city. It was said that you could see uh, the giant statue of Athena in, that, in the Parthenon from 40 miles away. But all in the town, everywhere in the town, there wasn't just Athena who stood in the Parthenon. There was statues and temples to Apollo, to Jupiter, to Venus, to Mercury, to Bacchus, to Neptune. The whole pantheon of Greek gods was there. All the gods of Olympus and at this cultural and religious epicenter of the known world, Paul's in the middle of it. And all these statues, by the way, were beautiful. They weren't, they weren't like 
childhood crafting projects. They were like, people spent years building these massive statues made of ivory and gold and silver, the finest Greek sculptors. And so Paul sees all this and he looks everywhere and he says he sees a city that's full of idols, but he's not just saying, hey, any two-year-old could tell you that this city was full of idols too because look at all of them. Paul's saying something a little bit different. When it says there, it's a really interesting Greek word that, that Luke chooses to use about what Paul saw. In fact, it's the only time it's used in the whole Bible. It's one of the only times it's used in all of ancient Greek literature. There aren't very many uses of this word. When it says full of, the city was full of idols, it doesn't just mean that like a cup is full of water. It doesn't just mean that it had a lot of a thing. The idea conveyed by this word that Luke chooses to use seems to be saying that the city was underneath an ocean of idols. It was smothered with them. It was swamped with them. Paul saw a city submerged in its idols. In other words, when Paul gets to Athens and he's checking into his, his hotel, he's waiting on his friends and he's walking around the town and he's walking around the marketplace, he sees a city that isn't just full of idols. He sees a people that are drowning in idols. This is oppressing you. This is destroying you. I'm now full of compassion. I'm full of passion with my compassion coming to the marketplace to share with you what I see and what I'm experiencing in this city. I just don't see you worshiping all these gods with all these names. I see you drowning in your idolatry and it's killing you and you don't even know it. He sees a city that's drowning in idols. So what is an idol? Well, a few clues in our passage help us understand in the modern day because we, we don't have statues to Athena and Apollo and, and Ares everywhere. We don't have those same statues, but we still have idols. So what is an idol? And our passage help shows us. After Paul has this initial debate in the marketplace, they're intrigued enough by his ideas that they then drag him up to the Oropagus, which this is the way the city goes. Actually, someone from our small group was recently in this very space. It's, it's crazy. There's a, there's a plaque at the Oropagus Hill of Paul's speech here, like cemented forever at the Oropagus Hill. So the Acropolis, where the Parthenon was, was the highest point in the city. The marketplace was down in the city. In between was the Oropagus, Literally, it means Mars Hill because legend had it that the god of war, Ares, or Mars, Ares was put on trial on this hill. And so this hill became a judicial place for sure, a court system, but also kind of, this is a place where we get serious and the elite go to discuss and debate all the things happening down there and up there. The Oropagus was a very important part of the city, and Paul is taken there in the shadow of the Parthenon overlooking the marketplace, and this is what he says when he gets to the Oropagus, when he gets to Mars Hill to discuss with these debaters, and what is this thing that you are saying? This is what Paul says. This is how he starts his speech off. Men of Athens, to a people that I see drowning in idols, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Here's what we do with our idols. We get religious with them. Here's what religion does. And here's a great way to identify where your idols might be. We worship them and we sacrifice to them. Because that's what idols demand of you. That you worship them and that you sacrifice them. So what kind of things do we worship? Well, it's easy to say that in the modern day we worship money or we worship fame or we worship being liked. And all those things are true. 
But remember, Paul's not just wanting to say, hey, see that, Athen- that Athena statue over there? See the, see the ivory thing that you're worshiping? I'm telling you that you shouldn't worship that. Paul's saying, no, 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 I see you're drowning in them. I want to talk to you, men of Athens in the Areopagus on the Mars Hill. I want to talk to you about why do you worship that? What's going on? Why do you worship the God of war? Why do you worship the God of beauty? That's what the Bible's always interested in. Not all only interested in what we worship, but why we worship those things. What is it about our idols? And here's what idols do to us and why we worship them. Idols always make us promises. Idols always promise to deliver on something. So we worship them in hopes that they will come true on what they promise to deliver. Here are three brief things. This is not exhaustive. Three brief things that our idols promise us and three brief things, if we're honest, three things we really want our idols to do for us. You should get that. Um, Someone has an idol of being on time. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, We want our idols, three things, to make us, to sustain us, and to make us belong. We want our idols to make us, to sustain us, and to make us belong, to make us. If I worship money, I don't just want money. I want money to make me somebody. I want the identity that comes with making and having a lot of money. I want the money I make to make me something. I want the money that I have and the more that I want the money, the more money I want to have, I want all of that to tell me who I am. If I make a little bit more money, if a zero gets added, if I get a bonus, if I get a raise, a little bit more, then maybe having that enough moneyness will finally make me feel like I have become somebody. So I will worship money and sacrifice money to the God of money so that money can make me into somebody that I want to be. Make me something idle. Make me into something. Or I'll worship the God of exercise or the God of beauty, clearly. But I, I, will, I, will, I will worship it and sacrifice to it because I want it to make me into something. I want it to make me into somebody. Make me something idle. Make me into something. Create in me who I want to be. Will you deliver, please, God of money or God of exercise or God of beauty? So first we want our idols to make us. Second thing we want is we want our idols to sustain us. If I make an idol out of fame or I make an idol out of being liked, It's not just that I want those things. Again, I may want them. Here's why I want them. I want those things to take care of me. I want those things to sustain me when there are dark nights of the soul. I want those things to make me feel okay when the world feels spiraling out of control. I want those things to comfort me when I'm hurting. I want those things to give me purpose when I'm despairing. And so, yes, I want people to like me. But what I really want is I want enough people to like me that when I'm despairing on my drive home because I'm afraid that the people in that meeting don't like me the way that I want them to like me, but enough people like me so now I'm comforted by the amount of people that like me. Or if I can control enough details in my life and not let anything surprise me, that will give me great comfort. Or if I can get enough done in the checklist of things that I need to do to climb the ladder or sustain the life or to not have any chaos or not have any anxiety, if I can control enough things, it will make me feel safe and secure because we all want our idols to sustain us and care for us. Idol, take care of me when I need you the most. And then lastly, we don't just want our idols to make us. We don't just want our idols to sustain us. We want our idols to make us feel like we belong. 
Maybe if I become successful enough, maybe if I sleep with somebody else, maybe if I finally find my true love, maybe if my kids turn out the way that I want them, maybe then I will feel like I have a place to belong. Maybe if I join that club or enter that echelon or have my kids go to that school or whatever it is that you would fill in the blank, I would like to be blank enough. That enoughness will make me feel like I finally belong somewhere. That enoughness will finally make me feel like I'm not just floating in nothingness, but I have an identity and I have a security and I have a place. I don't care what kind of healthy house you grew up in, we're all dying to know that we have a place to belong to. All of us want to know that there's a family and a father that would welcome us in. All of us are dying to know that there's a family and a father that would take us in and take us back, no matter what far country we've been in. And so we want our idols to make us feel like I belong. If I can have enough of something, if I can finally get beautiful enough, get rich enough, get successful enough, get righteous enough, get spiritual enough, get emotionally in tune enough, whatever it is, maybe that will finally make me feel like I belong and I have a safe place to be myself. To make us, to sustain us, and to make us feel like we belong, we all want our idols to do that for us. So did the Athenians. God of war, make me feel secure. God of fertility, make me feel like I matter. God of beauty, make me feel like I am somebody. God of the harvest, make me feel like I belong in this town. God of whatever, the Athenians, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. See, and this is the most invasive part about looking at our idols, not just what we worship, but why we worship them. Your idols, our idols, they will always show you what you really want. They will show you what you desire beneath the idol. They will show you not only your deepest longings, they will expose in you why you're running to the things you're running to to fulfill those deepest longings. So looking at idols can be unnerving because they will show you the real you. They will show you what you actually crave and they will expose in the places, all the places in you that you are trying to satiate that craving. It's like the mirror of Irised, Harry Potter. Yes, everyone. Spoiler alert, Irised is desire backwards. You didn't know that, did you? Um, this is, what, this, is what have said, this is what is said of the mirror of Irised in Harry Potter. To all who look at it, here's what the mirror promises to do for you. I show not your face, but your heart's desire. Dumbledore says of it that it, is, it shows the most desperate desire of a person's heart, a vision, he says, that has been known to drive men mad, and many have wasted away before it. Because here's what the mirror is gonna show you, what you truly want. And now when you see it, when you actually have to look at what you truly want, when your deepest longing is exposed in the mirror, when your deepest longing is exposed in the idols, now you have to deal with the fact. You have to own up to the fact that this is what you're really after. This is what you really want. You don't want more money. You want to be somebody. You don't really want to be more beautiful. You want a place to belong. You don't really want to be liked. You want a place to be comforted. That's what you're really after. This is what you're craving. This is what you desire, which is why these Athenians are so much like us. Some of you may not know this, but with our Parthenon replica, John Tuminello, shout out, Centennial Park, there you go. Um, 
And all of our love of the university presence here, all of our love for the arts, Nashville is also known as the Athens of the South. You Georgia fans thought that it was Athens, Georgia. It's not. It's Nashville. The Athens of the South. That's a, a branded name, and it's not accidental. Nashville is known as the Athens of the South. And thinking of that we can relate so much to these Athenians, did you see the description given to these idle drowning people? One of the things that Luke tells us, the author of Acts, Luke tells us about these Athenians. Listen to this in verse 21. This, this is so exposing. This is so damning for us. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Except telling or hearing something new. Nashville doesn't struggle with that. <laughs> Something, 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 something new has to make us. Something new has to sustain us. Something new has to make us feel like we belong. And so when they don't deliver, when the Athenas and the, and the Zeuses and the Marses, when those don't deliver, we just, and they just kept adding gods to it. Just add to the pantheon. There's Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. There's Ares, the goddess of war. There's Apollo, the god of music and art. There's Bacchus, the god of wine and winemaking and festivities. And how come we have all these gods and we're still wanting more? We, well, I guess we just need something new then. Let's just add to it. Let's just keep adding to our pantheon of gods things to worship, things to sacrifice to, things to find, because maybe the next god, maybe the next thing, maybe the next introduction, maybe the next bonus, maybe the next promotion, maybe the next romantic pursuit, maybe the next identity you choose for yourself, maybe the next thing will deliver. So we keep adding gods. Athens of the South. People of Nashville, I see in every way you are very religious. There are all kinds of gods in this city to worship. And again, it's, it's easy to say, well, fame and fortune and celebrity and all that, that that's, that's like the easy target. If you're just looking at Nashville from the outside and Music City and all the, all the, the boom and the, and the development and the, and the university, like, oh, people are just trying to climb the ladder there and the drivenness and the accomplishment, all that's here. But how about like this other subtle idol that we kind of love to add to the pantheon of, of Nashville gods? How about the God of always being relevant? Like I need people to always be talking about me. I need people to know that I'm on the right side of the right issues. I need to be aware of current fads, current trends, current Twitter fires, current conversations. I need to listen to all the right podcasts, watch all the right shows, know the right bands, be aware of the new right restaurants. Don't make me feel irrelevant. And in this town, I don't know how to constantly feel relevant unless I'm doing all those things. Or how about the God of the, that just about everybody in this town is committed to, certainly when we first moved to this town, until either we or this God gets killed in us, but the, the God of never being a nobody. I've got to be somebody. That's why I moved here. That's why I came to school here. That's why I'm pursuing the thing I'm pursuing here. I can't not be somebody. So I'll worship the God of never being a nobody or the God of being in the inner circle. I don't care what circles you run in here, there's some other circle that you feel on the outside of. And I'm just trying to, what do I have to do to get into that circle? It feels like, man, if I could just land my feet in that inner circle, in that network, in that record label, in that business group, in that university talk, whatever it is, 
the God of never being on the outside of the inner circle, so we keep chasing the inner circle. As it was said of Athens, it may be easier in Nashville to find a God than a person. (laughs) The problem with this, with our pursuit of idols like this, with our worship of them, is that the more we worship them, the more confused we become. Kristen, who called us to worship, called us to worship with Psalm 115, which is a very fitting call to worship. What it says in Psalm 115 is that those who worship idols become like them, which is kind of an existential, philosophical, like, what are you talking about? Well, listen to how the author of Psalm 115 describes idols. And then know that when he's describing the idols and he says, when you worship idols, you become like them. Listen to what he says about idols. They have mouths but don't speak. They have eyes but can't see. They have ears but can't hear. They have noses but don't smell. They have hands but do not feel. They have feet but do not walk. Our idols destroy us. Our idols take our very life from us. They drown us. We have eyes but we can't see anything. We're more confused than we ever thought we were, so maybe if I worship another idol, it will set me free from the confusion that I feel from worshiping the previous idol. I've got eyes but can't see, ears that can't hear. Our idols make us more and more confused. They actually dehumanize us. They take away who we were intended to be. They turn us in, they morph us into something that we were never made to be because you become like what you worship, and when you worship idols, you become like them. Here's how confused and desperate they were in Athens. And I would say in the Athens of the South, we're, we're just as guilty. But this, this is kind of one of the indicting uh, phrases and parts of this whole passage. They don't even know, when they start naming new gods, they've gotten so uh, good at that that we just have to keep adding. They, don't, they only pay attention to something new and the next fad and the next thing and the next god. Now they've got gods that they don't even know what to name them. They have an altar, Paul says, to an unknown God. They don't even know what to call the thing that they're worshiping now. We've run out of God names. We've run out of God, the God of something, so just call that the unknown God. There's a lot of legend, a lot of uh, speculation about what caused these Athenians to have this temple and this uh, altar to an unknown God. But at the same time, Paul does this masterfully in verse 22. He takes this, you're so confused, you're worshiping a God you don't even know the name of. You don't even know why you're worshiping it and why you're sacrificing to it, but you're doing it anyway. But then Paul doesn't condemn them for that. He uses that as a doorway in to tell them about this unknown God. Verse 22 says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here's what he's about to do. This unknown God you're worshiping, I'm here to tell you his name. But I'm not here just to tell you his name, I'm here to show you that he's better than all of your idols. Paul does this masterfully. He even quotes their own poetry back to them, showing them like a doorway in the things that they long for from all their idols, but are really true in his God. 
He's saying to them, you're craving so much from your idols. You're demanding so much from them. You're so confused. All you pursue is something new. And I perceive in every way that you're very religious. You're so religious and so committed to chasing the new thing that will satisfy you. Let me show you just how confused you are. These idols that you demand so much from, they cannot give it to you. You want your idols to make you. You want your idols to sustain you. And you want your idols to make you belong. Now, men of Athens on the Oropagus, now, men and women of the Athens of the South, let me tell you about this God. That's what he does in his sermon. Verse 24, look at what he says about this unknown and unnamed God that Paul knows who it really is. This is the God who made the world and everything in it including you. Here's what Paul just said. This is your maker and this is your creator. He makes you, which means you will only get your true sense of self from him. You cannot have one of these gods, the God of war, the God of fertility, the God of beauty. They can't tell you who you are because they didn't make you. But the God of heaven, the God of Israel did make you. He made the world and everything in it. So the only place you will get your true sense of self is from him. This God made you, which means he can remake you. Verse 27, this is what he says. This is kind of part of the run-on sentence. He says, talking about men and the ones that God created all over the world, but that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Here's what Paul just said. He didn't just make you. You don't just get your sense of self only from him. He sustains you and he's nearer to you than you could possibly imagine. He's giving you your life and your breath. Translation, he's there when you need him because he never leaves you. He will give you what you actually need. You want the God of war. You want the God of beauty to give you what you think you need. You want them to sustain you and care for you when it's dark and when you're despairing. I'm telling you, they can't give you what you need, but this one can. He sustains you. He gives you your very life and your very breath, and he never leaves you. He can actually comfort you. He can actually be to you what you need from these gods. He makes you. He sustains you. And then verse 28, this is, this is brilliant of, of Paul. He says, and, and as even as some of your own poets have said, and now he quotes like a second or third century ancient Greek poem about Zeus, like the, the, the head god. Listen, this is, this is a direct quote taken from ancient Greek poetry. He says, as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. They're saying that about Zeus because that's what everybody wanted to be true. Tell us we came from somewhere. Tell us that we belong to something. Tell us that this head God, tell us that the, the, the chief God of all gods, tell us we belong to him for we are all his offspring. And then Paul twists it and says, it's not Zeus. You want it to be Zeus. It's not Zeus. It's not money. It's not fame. I know you want, I know you want those things that tell you that you belong, but it's not. This is what he says. Being then God's offspring, verse 29, this is a massive four-word statement. You want to belong to something, but you are God's offspring. Do you know what this means? Your maker and your sustainer is your father. You have a family. You have a place to belong, and your place is only in the one who made you, sustain you, and will always welcome you home. That's where you belong. You're his offspring. He treats you like a child of his. Athenians, 
Nashvillians, what you want your idols to do for you can only be found in the God of Israel. Not the unapproachable gods of Mount Olympus, but the incarnate God of Calvary. Not the unattainable gods of this city, but the one who is nearer to you than you could ever imagine. Not the ever-changing God of the season and the insatiable quest for something new, but the unchanging God who made, sustains, and welcomes you. That's what Paul presents to them on the Mars Hill. And then he gives them even more beauty of this one true God that they have deemed unknown. And he's saying, he's not unknowable. He's not unnamed. Let me tell you who he is. This is how you can trust him, he says. This is how you can know he's sturdy. This is how you can know as all of your idols and all of their vaporness being exposed on Mars Hill, this is how you can know that it's safe to repent to this God of Israel. Verse 24 and 25 says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Here's what he just said to them and to you. The God who made you, the God who sustains you, and the God who welcomes you doesn't need anything from you. These gods do. This God doesn't. The God who is nearer to you than you could possibly imagine, the God who calls you his own, the God who left his holy hill to come and buy you back with his blood doesn't need anything from you. Which means the only reason he made you the only reason he sustains you, the only reason he welcomes you, the only reason he purchased you by the blood of his son is because he really wanted you. He doesn't need you. He wants you. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. But let me tell you what he's done for you. He doesn't need anything from you. So as we come to this table in repentance, that's how Paul lands his sermon, leading them to repentance. Here's what repentance is. It's laying down your worthless idols before him. It's repenting of them. It's saying, I have worshiped the God of beauty. I've worshiped my own, the gods of my own making. I've worshiped the gods of money. I've worshiped the gods of security. I've worshiped the gods of family. I've worshiped all the, the innumerable gods of this town. Worship the God of being relevant. I've worshiped the God of never being a nobody. I've worshiped all those things. God, I lay them before you, and here's what I'm picking up. I'm picking up what you gave to me, not because you needed anything from me, but because you wanted me. See, idols don't get destroyed, they get replaced. And so instead of wasting our time with idols who can't give us what we want from them, would you instead come and lay yourself before the God who wanted you? And he made it possible through the elements on this table. So let's pray and then we'll come and feast together. Jesus, many days it is, it's easier to find a God in this town than it is a human. We've all become so inhuman. We've all become so morphed 
from the gods that we worship in this town, and we, we create them. We create unknown gods. We create gods that have never even existed before to try to get something new that would make us sustain us and make us feel, feel like we belong. And Jesus, you tell us that only those things can be found in you. And so instead of this staying up in our heads of intellectual assent to these ideas, Jesus, get us off of Mars Hill. Get us out of the debating and get us to Calvary, we pray. We lay our idols at your feet in all of our hurting and in all of our despairing and in all of our needing. Would you come and meet us in this place at your table, we pray in your name. Amen.